Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. Now your hosts. Hello and welcome to the Hyperion Hub. I'm John Alois and as always joined by Sean Degenhart. Hello. And John Redling Schaefer. Hi there. This week on Our Disney Views, we're reminded to encourage you to send in show ideas. We got one sent in this week from listener Adam Harris. He's asking for a deep dive episode on the history of Disney video games. We will definitely do that in a future show, Adam. Probably my all-time favorite Disney video game was Epic Mickey for the Nintendo Wii. It has many classic characters, including Horace Horsecollar and the Gremlins from the 1940s comics. It's probably about 15 to 20 hours worth of playtime. It took me about a year, maybe a year and a half to complete it. Um, my son sat next to me for like the last month, and we just had a blast uh, seeing all the different characters and everything. And then my wife actually video recorded the last day that we played when we finished the game and it was a it was a big event for us i think he's played it twice both times was in like you know a week so they inspired a sequel that has oswald in it hmm. yeah good time if you have a favorite or have an idea for us please send it our way at podcast at the hyperion hub.com now on to the second half of our conversation with writer, producer, director Jeff Sherman, who talks about the documentary he co-directed called The Boys about his father and uncle, the Sherman Brothers. So 2009, uh, you premiered a documentary um, that is beautiful. It just came out on Disney Plus here not too long ago. Um, a lot of issues presented in that documentary uh, you produced with your cousin Greg, which is Richard's son. What were your goals when you set out to produce this documentary? What did you want to accomplish? Well, the way it started was our dad's career taking one of those low parts of the roller coaster, and they were getting older. And so Greg and I, we we hadn't talked. Our families were very estranged, as you see in the in the in the boys in the documentary, the Sherman Brothers story. Um, and I went to the opening of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang in London, the stage production. And I just went out by myself, and there was an after party. The Broccoli's, who do all the James Bond movies, Barbara Broccoli had produced the play, <clears throat> and she rented out this club called the In and Out Club in London, which was a beautiful, cool place. And it was it was just the, the most amazing party you've ever been to. And I look over, and sitting at the bar is my cousin doing shots. Now I've spoken to him. I, I, we weren't stranger strangers, but we didn't really hang out because our families were just so kind of disconnected. And I walked over to him, I put my hand on his shoulder, I said, so, do you have any idea what went on with our families? And we both started, we sat down, he was so excited that I did that, because we were, it was like an invisible wall we weren't supposed to cross. And uh, so we talked until the party was over, and we compared notes, and so we, we were approached by a producer who wanted to do a biopic, on, you know, a scripted biopic on our dads, and and that fell through, but Greg and I stayed in touch. And, and uh, one day I took him out for his birthday. The premiere of Mary Poppins on Broadway was going to happen. And I said, Greg, you know what we ought to do to prove the concept of the Sherman Brothers is we should shoot a little short demonstration film 
around the opening of Mary Poppins because I knew that all these people were going to be there, Roy Disney and all these other people and who I, I kind of knew. And uh, so we, we set it up and uh, we, we did it out of pocket. We got uh, my in-laws invested and a friend of Greg's and we each put in a little money, not, not much. And we shot a 25 minute um, demonstration and really was to do a, a scripted bio because because we're both screenwriters, Greg and I. So uh, we showed it to Roy Disney and we showed it to Tom Schumacher. Roy was, you know, Roy Disney, name over the Disneyland. And, uh, and Tom Schumacher, who's the head of Disney Theatrical. And they were both interviewed and they saw it and they both called Dick Cook, who was the head of the studio at the time. And Dick Cook called my house. And I'm like, <laughs> and, he, and uh, he said, uh, I, I heard you got a good little 25-minute piece. I'd love to see it. And I said, oh, okay. I said, oh, can I bring my cousin? He goes, of course. So we, we went, and, and another fellow, Steve Buxbaum, who's one of the executive producers. And uh, we went over to the private screening room in the, the Team Disney building, the one with all the dwarfs on it. And it's Dick Cook's own private screening room. There's probably 30 seats in it. And we're sitting there. I'm kind of nervous because, you know, this is big time. And he comes in and sits right next to me, Dick Cook. And I'm like, ugh. And he goes, well, and he goes, let's roll it. And the, as the lights are going down, I said, I sure hope you like this because if you don't want to do this, we can't do it. And he said, I, I know. <laughs> and the lights went down. And the 25-minute piece was actually pre it was pretty good. It was a shorter version of the story, which was, um, you know, the movie was about, uh, the theme I always thought it was, was it's two guys, who two brothers um, who couldn't get along, but um, met somewhere in the middle with their music. And... Um, you know, and, and, the, and the miracle of, of their creation and that they could do this. And for so long, they did, you know, over 50 movies and they worked together for 50 years. And, and believe me, there was an strange relationship. But um, so anyway, so I look over toward the end of this 25 minute thing and I see Dick kind of, Dick Cook kind of wiping a little tear off his eye. And he goes, okay, boys, he goes, listen, um, I want you to come back in tomorrow. We're gonna do this as a feature documentary. And I went, we, we hadn't planned on that, actually. He goes, no, no you guys, have, you, you can do it. He goes, but go deeper and darker. I want to see what happened. I want to know about it. So we went in the next day, and all the departments were, I mean, I couldn't believe the way they treated this. It was really important to Dick Cook. He was very, he did three big um, documentaries at the same time, Walton El Grupo and uh, Don Hans movie. Uh, um, Waking Sleeping Beauty. Waking Sleeping yeah. Beauty. And he really wanted to get that. He was, a, you know, he was a guy that had worked on the uh, on the Jungle Cruises. He worked his way up from from nothing at Disney, and really loved that history. So he wanted us to do this. All the departments were there, and there was a fellow, one of the attorneys. There, there probably were twenty people in the room with us, and he said, oh, "You guys all work for that. You know, they'll work with you. Whatever you need. Here's this person. Here's that. I'm, I'm taking notes now." And uh, this one guy raises his hand. He goes, "So." Um, just so you know, you can only have 12 songs in the movie. And I said, well, that's gonna be a problem because there are 14 in Mary Poppins, I believe. <laughs> and Dick laughed. And this other fellow came over to me, Mitch Lieb, who was, I think he's still there. And he was one of the music guys. And he walked over and he said, listen, Jeff, he goes, your dad and uncle made Disney music. You can have as many songs in there wow. as you want. 
So we ended up having 180 songs. I think it's wow. a record. Oh. When, we, when we finished the film, we had to clear 180 songs because not every one of them was a Disney song. In fact, a lot mm-hmm. weren't. And sometimes there's always a lot of uh, um, legal stuff going on between the different studios. So, you know, we had stuff that was in Paramount films and stuff that was in, but we got pretty much everything in there that we wanted. And we had our grandfather songs in too, because my grandpa, Al, uh, who was the father of the two Sherman brothers, was a big Tin Pan Alley songwriter. So we got a lot of his things in there too. But that took us an extra year to clear all those songs. It was a lot of work. One of my favorite parts of the film, the film is is beautiful. It's it's wonderful start to finish. And I know you got some great producers involved with Jeff Curdy, and, and, and it's just a wonderful story. One of the things that stuck out to me, the way it's edited, it's, it's brilliant. At one point, you have back-to-back sound bites, and you have Richard, or you have your dad, actually, Bob, talking about how, as kids, they weren't very close. And that's butted right up against Richard saying they were very close as kids, and he looked up to your dad. He was his hero. And it just does a nice job of setting up how different they were, right? And then we get to the point where the day comes, and they had worked for the Disney company here and there, like you said, with Annette and other things. But that day that Walt officially asked them to be a part of the studio, and both of these separate interviews are shot thousands of miles apart. And when they get to that moment, each time they both break down. And you edited those together to show what that meant to them. And, you know, the Disney company may have kind of made your brothers closer than they possibly ever would have been. So it's uh, just a wonderful moment and just brilliantly edited. I love that film, those parts as well. Thanks. Yeah, we had a a terrific, uh, Richie Evers was our editor and we worked very closely with him. Great. The way we kind of put it together was, it was actually Roy Disney's advice because he'd done a lot of documentaries. He said, don't just go and talk to your dads once, go many times because you're going to learn something from your uncle that your dad will comment on. And so what I did, Greg was very much on a laptop and he did all of his notes on that. And we did sequences. We would do like that, the, the thing you mentioned, but you know, the, the boys talking about each other as boys. And then, you know, the, talking about their first, you know, when they, when Disney hired them to be staff songwriters. I had a room in my office. I'm old school, so I just took all, I had everything transcribed and I paper cut it. So I would go, oh, that's great against that. So that kind of is how it worked. And then Greg and I would work back and forth together with Richie and, and get it. We had, we had a great core little staff, Patrick O'Grady, who was our, our he, we almost killed that poor guy. <laughs> he was doing a lot of the clearance and uh, the pictures, of, you know, it, with, with these movies, you don't think about it, but every every picture every photograph has to be who took it what you know who else was in the picture and the heart the funniest part for me was we were, we were doing i wanted to have a lot of the big dance routines you know the step in time and this and that and the disney lawyer called once in a while they would see things periodically they go this is really great it's really great now you have all the names of the and clearance from all the dancers and the musicians on those sessions right and, I said, cut the big numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Lawyers, am I right, John? <laughs> oh, they're the worst. They're the worst. 
<laughs> John's a lawyer, just so you know. <laughs> no, they, 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 have to, you know? they have to, you know, everybody sues Disney, so they didn't want to have any problems with that. There was another funny thing they did, which was, you might notice that we got a, a PG rating, which I, I'm going to like, you know, but uh, it was because uh, they had cigarettes and pipes and almost every, wow. they would always oh, my dad huh. smoke cigarettes and my, not for all his life, but during that period, and my uncle always had a pipe in his mouth. So they first wanted us to blur them all out and we kind of give, gave them one scene and they went, oh, don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> Um, so it just, um, 2009 is when that premiered, and then it just this year uh, came out on Disney+. Plus. Have you noticed a big resurgence and in interest in it? How has it been received? Um, are you hearing things from people after watching it? Yeah, I do. In fact, a lot of people, you know, who didn't get around to, you know, it's hard to find documentaries usually. We were only in the theaters for a couple of weeks, and then it was on DVD, and, um, you know, but it, it's limited. There's a, a limit to that audience. Um, and uh, I find that almost every day somebody writes to me now and goes, I, yes, a good friend of mine had never seen it. And he wrote to me and he just watched it and he said, I can't stop crying. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's bittersweet. I, I, we, a lot of people think it, it kind of shows sort of a, a, a darkness about them. But I, I, I always looked at it as... Having sat, I worked with them. You know, I did this show called uh, The Enchanted Musical Playhouse back when the Disney Channel first started. I produced it with the Osmond family, with Jimmy and Donnie. And I hired my dad and uncle to work on it. So I got to work with them. I wrote scripts and they would write the songs and I got to see how that process worked, which is invaluable and amazing. Um, but they would fight. I mean, I could tell you a, a story, but I won't repeat it. <laughs> uh, what happened the first day. I'll, I'll tell you and maybe just cut it out because it's a little bit. <laughs> so I had the first one we did was the Velveteen Rabbit. If you have kids, you probably know this storybook. And so I said, Dad, you know, how do I work with you guys? He said, Well, get three copies, of, same copy in the same version of the story. Drop one at your uncle's house. Drop them with me, and you take one. And and then song spot. I said, Dad, I have two questions. I said, What do you mean song spot? And the other thing I said, where does Uncle Dick live? He lived seven blocks from us, but I'd never been to his house. That's how strange it was. So I, I, I knew my uncle from the office. We've always been very close, but I just didn't know where he lived. So he told me. And it was weird. I went to his house. I rang the bell, just like our house had played. It's a small world. Uh, <laughs> it was really kind of creepy. It was a parallel universe. And he opened the door, crack, and took the book and said, thank you. I'll see you on Thursday. All right. So I go and I'm all excited. I drive to their office, which was on Sunset Boulevard, if you know LA, right near where Tower Records was, right around that area. And I go up the steps. I've been there a million times. So today I'm going to work with the Sherman Brothers and happily coming up. I'm so excited. I walk in, there's tension in the room. It's just like, it's, it's you know, you've been in a room with tension where it's like hard to breathe. And, I, and they're, just, they're just quiet. My dad's at his desk. My uncle's at his desk, and they're just kind of staring at each other. I walked in, and there's a chair in the middle of the room, and I sit in, and I go, well, hey, how's everybody doing? My dad goes, let's just get into it. Went, All right. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I was looking through the script. Nobody was saying anything, so I thought I'd start. And I said, I looked at the script, did the book, and I think the first song ought to come maybe on page three where my uncle stops me. He goes, that's the most ridiculous idea I've ever heard. And he slams his hand down. And my dad said, you can talk to me like that, but you cannot talk to my son like that. And they got into this thing where I'm holding these two 50-something-year-old men apart. And then suddenly my uncle goes over to the piano. He starts playing this happy little melody. My dad looks at me, shakes his head, goes back, pulls out his little writing pad. 
And they wrote a song called Ribbity Rabbity Run. <laughs> so I thought, like, I've destroyed the Sherman Brothers. I've, I've, I've ruined this. And I, I, after the session, I was there for a while. I go home and I call my dad and I said, Dad, I'm so sorry if I did something wrong. He goes, no, that's how we work. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> You know, you yeah. think about it and look at some of the greatest songwriters, all these close people who work together on a daily basis and they barely got along. Imagine brothers, you yeah. know, for decades. It's, it's, it's yeah. amazing. In making the movie, we interviewed about 15 different songwriters, songwriting entities. And the question most of them asked us was, because they hadn't seen the film yet, they didn't know really what the nature of the relationship was. They said, do they actually sit in the room together and write? And I said, yeah, you know, and uh, I remember it was uh, uh, Sheldon Harnick who wrote the lyrics to Fiddler on the Roof and a lot of other wonderful scores. And he and Jerry Bach, he said, couldn't stand to be in the room together. Jerry would write melodies and say, you know, here, here's a melody. I, th I think it's about your kids growing up. And he'd just go from there. And that was how they worked. And Alan Menken, when we, when we interviewed him, he said, it would be impossible for me to sit in a room with one of my siblings and try to write. I just can't even imagine that. And it was hard for them and it took its toll, uh, maybe even a little more on my dad because he was quiet and, and took a lot of stuff, but he, he could give it to, you know, he would come home from work sometimes and just be just so drained. And he would say, you know, it was another one of those days. And I'd say, well, why don't you go find Dad, you're a lyricist. There's so many composers who would love to work with you. Why don't you find somebody else? He goes, I don't want to do it with anybody else. We do this really well. They knew it. It was just a perfect thing. And, and, the, and the odd thing was they really loved each other. They just didn't really like each other. <laughs> it's, it's, they were just so, so different, which, which, you know, interestingly, if they were too similar, they probably wouldn't have been a great songwriting team. It caused those sparks to happen, you know, the, that competition. And same with Lennon and McCartney, you know, they wanted to outdo each other and write a better song. And, and uh, you know, and Lennon and McCartney, if you think about it, they were only together for what, maybe 12 or 13 years. I think, yeah, even less, maybe uh, 10 years. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was a little before the, they broke up. Yeah. About 10 years, I guess. But my dad and uncle had this relationship, you know, and they stayed together for 50 years. And that's really the miracle of the Sherman Brothers to me. I mean, and, and because they, they knew they were good at it and they were doing such beloved things that it, they, they knew that the sum of them was better than the parts. So what do you think of when you hear people coming out of the park singing, there's a great big beautiful tomorrow and it's a small world and just realizing the legacy I mean, under the Disney name, I think the Sherman name has probably the largest legacy in the Disney universe. So, I mean, how does that make you feel? Well, it's a, a big source of pride. Um, it's, uh, you know, I, when I started working on Boy Meets World at, at the studio uh, in 93, I got an office in the animation building in the same building where my dad was. My dad and uncle were in 3C10 and 11 up the floor above and my office was down the floor below them. And um, it was powerful to me. You know, it was, I grew up on that studio a lot and here I was working and I've worked more than half my career at Disney in different aspects, different television shows and movies and things. The funny story about that was one day my office overlooked the, uh, the studio theater. It was facing uh, that street. And there was a big commotion outside in front of the theater. <clears throat> and one of my friends on staff came into my office and said, looked at it and goes, is that your dad? And I said, 
oh yeah, it is. I wonder what's going on. So I walked down and it was the day they were getting their handprints in the cement outside. And my dad, I said, dad, you know, I'm right here. I said, why didn't you tell me this was going on? He goes, oh, I knew you were working. I didn't want to bother you. Oh, so, you know, that's the kind of guy he was. He was just very humble. He used to keep all of his awards. You know, they had tons of gold and platinum records and Oscars and Grammys and foreign film festival awards. And they were all in my dad's bathroom because he didn't really want to show them off. And one day my mom, some, you know, every time somebody would come, everybody goes, can I hold the Oscars? So my mom would have to trot up the stairs, grab the Oscars in their head, you know, she was a little small woman. And she would come down and one day she said, darn it, Bob, I'm building you a room for your trophies and it's going to be downstairs right here. So it became his favorite room eventually. It was the blue room off the, off the living room. But, uh, but no, hearing all that stuff and, and, you know, you walk through the park and you just... I, it's unlike anybody else. You hear those songs wherever you go. They're they're playing someplace. That, that wonderful guy who plays the piano down at the, at the Carnation shop down at the end. And he's always playing something that you know. And, and the parades and the just all that stuff. It, it really is. Uh, it's it's overwhelming. I'll tell you one other little quick story, which was when Poppins came out and they won the Oscar. They won two Oscars for best song and best score. They had a concert at the Hollywood Bowl, a children's concert in the daytime. And it was classical music for kids, kind of the, you know, approachable classical music. And then there was going to be an interlude of the songs from Mary Poppins. And so I went with my dad, my uncle, and my two sisters, Lori and Tracy. And we were sitting in a box. And it came time for the Mary Poppins stuff. And, I, you know, I, I didn't think that much about it. My dad was so humble. I didn't really think, you know, I, I didn't get it. So um, they... Uh, before they started the Mary Poppins they sing, they, section, they said the uh, two fellows that wrote the songs and just won the Academy Awards are here today. And they stood up and it was the end of the concert. It was after they played the little medley. And uh, we got, I, I was signing autographs. You know, we were just all, <laughs> the people swarmed. If you've ever been there, it was, it was like, it was a little scary, but like everybody wanted to meet them. <laughs> and I realized it was bigger than I had imagined, you know, because, my dad just went downplayed. He, he, not that he wasn't proud of it. He just, to him, it was an art. It wasn't, you know, an ego thing. One funny story: when uh, we were at Disney World with my girls, <clears throat> first ride, we had just gotten off the plane. It was hot. We were standing in line. It's a small world, and I did a Facebook live, and I said, "Clara, where are we?" And she said, "It's a small world. Aren't you excited?" No, I don't like it's a small world. And you commented on that. You said something like, "Hey, there's nothing wrong with it's a small world," or "That's a great song," or something like that. <laughs> and later, I told her, I said, "Do you know who this is?" She's like, "No." I said, "His dad and uncle wrote this song," and her eyes got wide, like, "Oh no, what did I do?" You know, when my when we go to the park, we used to go quite a bit, especially early when I was a little kid. But later on, even and other times my dad and uncle would be honored for something. We'd go to the park and they'd do stuff. And we always would go on. It's a small world. It's a family thing we would do. And my dad never watched the ride. He would watch the littlest kid on the boat and watch them learn the song. Uh-huh. And he said to me, I, we, when we were doing the, the uh, um, movie, I said, so, you know, what are you, what are you proud of? And he said, well, you know, if I, if I can come back after I die, you'll find me standing at the end of It's a Small World, shaking everybody's hands as they come off. Mm. 
So there's a little tradition that maybe your your listeners can do, which is my friends who all know that story, when they get off the boat, they say, hi, Bob. Mm. We wow. will not ride that ever again without saying yeah. that. I promise you. Oh, you say we'll never ride that again. No, no, no. I love, I love it. I maybe, love maybe it. Sean's daughter, but yeah. <laughs> and I agree with you. I, I have so many wonderful photos and videos of of our kids looking at every at all the dolls and everything. And and yeah, the music is just great. I had that album as a kid. I listened to it all the time. The music is better than great. It's timeless and that's got to be pretty amazing too i mean you can watch one of the movies that they wrote or watch some of the shows that you helped produce you know at disney but when you're walking through the park you're seeing other people's reaction to the art as well you're with other people so that's got to be pretty cool what a great story thank you for sharing that the way small world happened was disney uh, was going to have attractions at the new york world's fair and one was Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, The Carousel of Progress. And then he said, I've got another one I'm doing. And come with me, guys. And he took my dad and uncle in his car because the studio is a little distance away from WED, where they design all the, uh, the theme park rides and attractions. And he drove them over there. And they had a mock-up of Small World. And it was all the kids. The original concept was all the kids were going to sing their national anthems. And so they had a mock-up of it, and Walt signaled somebody, and they turned it on, and my dad said it was just, (laughs) you couldn't be there. It was just horrible. And and Disney goes, stop it, stop it. He goes, I want one song that we're going to translate into different languages, and I want it to be like Row, Row, Row Your Boat, so it kind of goes around in a circle so we can just continue it. And so they went back to their office, and they wrote a slow one, medium one, and a fast one. And I think it's the fast one or the medium. It's not the slow one. And uh, th- they wrote it that afternoon, and it just, it just, you know, that's that's how they were. They could just do that, they, and they and went into the mindset of of being able to do that. It's amazing. And didn't they want to donate all of their royalties? Yeah, they, they Walt. After he heard the song, they were driving with him again, and they said, "My dad was sitting in front with Walt, and he said, Walt, we, you know, Dick and I have talked about it because it was for UNICEF." And he said, we want to donate all of our, the proceeds from our royalties to, to UNICEF. And Disney pulled off the freeway onto the shoulder and he turned to them and he said, you are not going to give away the royalties. They're making enough money on this without that. And this will put your kids through college. So thank you, Walt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, their heart was in the right place, but Walt was looking out for them. That's great. Yeah. Shifting gears a little bit. Can you talk? to us about some of the work that you did for the Disney studio. You've mentioned it, but, but how was that going back to the studio and working on boy meets meets world and, and um, things that are, are on Disney plus today. And we still enjoy today. Well, it was always special to me to work there, you know, just walking on that lot. It hasn't changed. I mean, except there's no back lot anymore, you know, but, uh, but the, the basic, when you, when you walk down the, that central part, the, the main street, it looks that, basically how it did when I was a kid. And, you know, they used to have tennis, uh, ping pong tables and they had a, a band that would play at lunchtime that was all the studio employees. It was like a really cool little, like a little college campus. And I don't think I've ever been more proud than the times when I walked on that studio lot and pitched and sold something or was working. You know, just to, I used, when I was working on Boy Meets World, uh, the Matthews, all of our sets, we, we, they had taken stage two and divided it in half because we didn't, you know, you don't need that big of a space. It's a huge stage. 
And I would sit in there when everybody else was gone and just remember that I was there as a kid and just that they shot Mary Poppins in there. They shot, that was Cherry Tree Lane. And I would touch the walls and I would just go like, it's, it, it's that having that kind of history with it was always special to me. And when I did the Enchanted Musical Playhouse and I got to actually work with them, you know, they, we did four of them. There were little half hour specials and, you know, we did the, the Stiffest and Soldier, which I wrote the songs for. And, you know, I, I, I got in on the coattails a little bit, but I, I was able to do it. Um, and we did a bunch of, of things there. There's, there's something to, I mean, I, I did a show called You Wish It Lasted for a little while on ABC for them. And I, I've done tons of development for them and movies and, and just about everything. Uh, but it always is, you know, the other places are fun to work, but, but that's a special place because you feel like, you know, I can walk there and my dad's hands are in that pavilion, you know, he's right there. And I, you know, almost every day I would go over there at lunchtime, and I'd go over and look at that. They, they used to be in the in the cement, as I mentioned, in front of the the uh, studio, uh, the studio theater, but they removed those, and they instead have that new pavilion out. It's not that new anymore, but the Legends Pavilion. The Legends Plaza, yeah. So I go there and you can put your hands. For years, I wouldn't put my hands in my dad's hand, but I thought it was wrong to do for some reason. And finally, somebody talked me into doing it, so I did it. So what are you working on now? Well, I've been doing a bunch of stuff. I'm also a composer. And during the uh, this, uh, pandemic, I've been uh, composing a lot of stuff, which I'm going to send to Sean, actually. I want him to hear it. Um, but uh, uh, And I've been writing a book. Uh, some of these stories are in it. Uh, other things, my own career stuff that's there. It's called Spiraling Upward. Um, for the last three years, I've been uh, developing a stage musical uh, based on the, the quick rise of the band Three Dog Night, if you know them, wow. if you remember Just a bunch of different things. A, the, a really fun thing for me right now is um, my first best friend, he lived, when we, before dad worked for Disney, we lived in a little a tract home in Northridge on a little dead end street. And about two doors down was a kid named David Titcher, who, was my, who became my best friend. He was six, six months older and I thought he was so old. Anyway, um, but he was like really mature, you know, but he was my best friend. And we've stayed in touch off and on during the years. He went to UCLA Film School, too. Um, we have a lot of the same interests, and we're developing a, a TV show together right now. So, which is really fun for me, because it's like, that's the cool. I mean, all my birthday films were always like sitting next to each other. He's that guy. So it's, it's really fun, too. As personal as they were for you, obviously, for your for your dad and your uncle, they mean and have meant so much to the rest of the world. And I just can remember very vivid memories of being a kid listening to a spoonful of sugar with my mom, you know, and, and my parents who have both passed. And to think now I'm talking to the person who inspired that story in that song is just an absolute honor and a privilege and one of the main reasons why we wanted to start this podcast. So thank you so much for joining yeah, us. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an honor for us. Uh, look forward to talking to you again and thank you so much. You bet. Thank you. Wonderful stories. You can share your Disney stories with us at podcast at the Hyperion Hub.com. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us so more people find us. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. We're glad you could join us. 
We'd love to hear from you. You can email or send us a recorded audio message at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Hyperion Hub is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or its subsidiaries. We'll meet you next time at the Hyperion Hub.